Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bougay, and I'm here back, back with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? Good, Chris. I'm excited to be here today, recording with you, always. I'm, I missed you last the last time we recorded. We recorded with the Inclusive 365 crew to uh, get word out about the road trip that, that we're going on to ISTE. Um, but today we're, we're back and we're going to chat about something. Um, here's what I thought we could talk about today, Rachel. I would like to talk about, if it's okay with you, the confusion around progress versus success. So oftentimes I feel like um, people confuse progress with success. Do you know what I'm talking about? So the idea that just because a kid's making progress with something doesn't mean that ultimately it's successful. Thinking more like long-term in the idea of framing success. Is that right? Yes, that's exactly, you, you, yes, you couldn't have, you, you said it way better than I could have said it, but that is exactly the idea, is that if I've given uh, a kid a core board that has four core vocabulary words in large quadrants, uh, I want, go, and eat, and those are the four words, and they have nothing else to use but that, and I teach them how to use that, I would chalk that up as progress. Look, they didn't know how to use this thing. And now I taught them how to use this thing and they are making progress. Therefore, it was the right tool and I am and progress is evidence that I made the right choice about the tool. But what we are, we know that doesn't work because in the long term, where's the success? So people confuse progress with success. I think this is like a really great thing to talk about because oftentimes we're seeing our students make progress with whatever we put in front of them. And I think that's part of the problem is we can get stuck in this vicious loop where sure our kids are making progress and that feels like great when we're sitting in an IEP meeting talking about goals and talking about whatever a student, you know, is doing communication wise. But you know, for me, success is where do I want this student to be when he is an adult? And, you know, communicating out in the world and, you know, working potentially and doing all the things that we hope for our students. Um, and so I just feel like we have to start reverse engineering what success looks like. And, you know, it doesn't look like for me, a core board with four words. Well, I, I just love how you put that reverse engineering. Let's design with the end in mind. Where do we want the learner to end up is with a robust language system, lots of words that, and a the ability to uh, begin spelling some words to the level that they could recognize those words from a list, so they could use word prediction. Right? If we start with that in at the end, then. The first choices we make when we're putting in place, we don't confuse success with progress, right? A quick example or an analogy, because you know I love my metaphors and analogies, would be if you were going to work and you work 50 miles away from your house, okay, and I gave you a pair of sneakers and you started walking towards work, that's measuring progress. And look, you got closer to work, but there's no way you could make 50 miles with just a pair of sneakers in the time you need to, to get to work on time, right? So I have to look at, okay, with, with trying to get to work and I live 50 miles away, what's a different tool that might be more useful than sneakers uh, to get me there? Yeah. I'm thinking about walking to work 50 miles and I'm tired thinking at that. <laughs> You'd have to wake up at, at 1 a.m. <laughs> and hit the pavement. 
Yeah, but I started walking and therefore, look, I me- if I measure the effectiveness of the sneakers or the effectiveness of that choice, well, look, uh, I've made progress because before they weren't going to, I wasn't going to work at all. But now I've taken 10 steps towards going to work, but it's not actually going to be effective in the long run. I'm still not going to get a work to work on time. Same thing when it comes to AAC. You can ask, you can uh, ask for low tech uh, stuff like with that core board that I described with four words, you could get two Big Macs, for instance, um, and teach yes, no. You could, um, uh, I don't know, what's other some sort of limiting thing that you've seen, you know, that is not putting that end in mind. Can you think of other examples that... Pecs. (laughs) Picture exchange is literally at the top of my mind right now. Yeah. Low tech, but okay, but what if someone were to say... But it has worked, meaning um, I gave a kid a communication book, okay, let's call it that rather than pecs, um, a communication book, and uh, they used it for a while, and then they became speaking, and they don't use it anymore. They're speaking now. What are some, is that evidence that the picture exchange book, the communication book worked, and therefore I should use that tool in the future? Well, I mean, I really believe that students will learn anything we put in front of them with the right support. Um, So sure, like, could our student have a picture exchange book or communication book rather and learn how to use it to communicate? Yes. Um, This one's tricky because the student transitioned to being a verbal communicator, which sometimes happens when we introduce AAC. But What about our our kids who don't transition to become verbal communicators? That's the kid that I'm interested in. And so I feel like we have to have this overarching assumption, the least dangerous assumption, right? We talk about it all the time in our uh, presentations together, is that we need to assume that this is a long-term AAC user. Because if we assume that picture exchange or whatever AAC we put in front of a student, um, you know, is going to lead to verbal speech, that's not a good assumption. And that's not, you know, fair for our student who then needs AAC long term, and they're stuck with a communication book. So for a kid who, you know, was introduced to PECS and then became a verbal communicator, I would argue that they could have been introduced to high tech AAC and became a verbal communicator. And if they didn't become a verbal communicator, guess what? We're still in a place where we wanna be long-term to build the skills that we know students need to be independent, autonomous communicators down the line. Amazing, amazing. It's like you jumped into my brain and pulled out the words that I wanted to say. It's like we've been doing a podcast together for, what are we, closing in on five years now here together because that's exactly what my thought is too. You mentioned it. (laughs) People couldn't see it because it's an audio podcast, but I was like pumping my fists in the air and pointing at you when you mentioned the least dangerous assumption. Like, like, yes, that's it, right? Which of, uh, of all the options, which one are you going to choose? Which one is the least dangerous? Well, if you use a communication book, that is not less dangerous than a robust language system. There certainly are users that will um, use that robust uh, language system and then hand it back to you and be like, thank you. That's what I, I used it for a while and I don't need it anymore. That's the least dangerous uh, assumption is to provide that. I don't see how logically people don't see that, you know? <laughs> I totally hear you, Chris. I feel like sometimes I'm shocked 
like I feel like sometimes we're in our own little AAC bubble and then I like go outside of it for a second and I'm like, how do people not get this? How do they not understand? Um, I also kind of want to talk about this idea of we talked about when a, when a student is making progress, but perhaps that's not a success because success is long term. Where do I want a student to be? And if they don't have the right tool or system in place, then we can't be successful long term. Let's talk about the reverse. Let's talk about our students who maybe aren't making progress, because I feel like that can be a, a way for educators to say, oh, well, they're not actually making progress with this system. So let's go back to light tech or low tech AAC or that communication book, because that's where they actually need to start if they're not showing that they make progress. Yes. Okay. So, so maybe uh, a, a robust AAC system was put in place, right? And then it's not working. And I put that in quotes. The student is has plateaued, right? And so there's this call to be like, well, it must be the tool. We got to go in and we got to change the tool. But chances are it's not the tool. Chances are it's the supports around the tool. Um, it's the instruction has stagnated or never existed in the first place. It's not the tool that's likely not working if it's robust system. It is likely the instruction around the tool. So the question I would ask is, how are you implementing the tool? Not, hey, let's go pick something else. Because let's just say, what has happened is if you pick something else, all right, I've had a system one, we're ripping that away from a learner, we're going to give them number two, and they're going to make progress on number two, too, because they have no other choice, right? So, that, so yeah, uh, again, I've given you a pair of sandals to walk in now instead of uh, sneakers, or I gave you a car in this case. I did give you a car that'll get there, but um, I never taught you how to use it. I never um, showed you how to drive. I never were with you, give it, giving you the guidance and support how to use the car, um, and therefore, the, a car is not the right choice for you. No, it's that I didn't do the instruction. So the car is the right choice. Let me do that instruction. Yes. And here's the thing. You know, when we've already had a team adopt an AAC system that's high tech for a student and we have figured out how to get funding for that tool and we've decided on a program and all the things that go into selecting and starting to implement high tech AAC, the idea of going back to a communication book or a communication board or something else when we don't see immediate progress is just a bad idea. <laughs> like I'm going to say it. It's a bad idea. I would never, and I, I hardly ever say always and never, but I would never recommend going backwards to, a, you know, some type of light tech AAC after we've started, you know, high tech AAC. It's just like, what do we think we're accomplishing if we take away a tool that we know is robust and going back to something that is really only just a stepping stone to get to high-tech AAC. That's the way I see light-tech AAC. It's a stepping stone to eventually get to high-tech. If you are saying in any conversation, the words go back, there's there's a problem. That that should be a big red flag. The lights should start flashing in your head. What is going where are we going back to? There's no going back. It's only going forward, right? Now we can change things that we're doing, but let's not go back anywhere, right? We're getting riled up over here, you guys. Like I am just feisty. <laughs>
I'll tell you this too. Here's another thing in these conversations, right? Is that I know a lot of our uh, our listening audience are people that do AAC. It's a large part of their profession. I think the pie chart of listeners, that's like, I would imagine, I don't know for sure. We don't have statistics on this, but I'm just imagining a lot of people that listen to this podcast um, spend a lot of time on AAC right? Uh, maybe even at least an hour a week listening to us. And then there's a smaller population of people that might listen to us that um, they do AAC as one eighth of their job, right? If you're like, like I'm doing Arctic more frequently and I'm doing, um, uh, I don't know, all sorts of the other stuff. So I'm doing voice and I'm doing uh, fluency, right? And all the other stuff speech therapists do or, or as parents or teachers listening that we do, AAC is a sliver, right? If you're one of those sliver people, this is, I'm addressing you right now, listen to the people that do it 80, 90% of their time. Those people have already gone through the journey of what works and what doesn't work. They've already understood that they need to listen to people who, who are AAC users who have come out the back end of instruction and gone, do this, don't do that, right? Um, they're spending their time because they, for whatever reason, they're spending their time listening to these people that do AAC mostly for the most part, because they'll have invested so much more time into learning about AAC, you can learn from them. What do you think about that? Yes, I would say that that's so spot on, Chris. The other thing is, which we've kind of talked about when we've talked about picture exchange and kind of these light tech AAC options, um, you know, we don't know any adults who choose that as their primary communication system. So again, part of the triangle of evidence-based practice is clients, like actual AAC users themselves, when we're trying to figure out what works. And we don't, we don't know of anyone who's like, actually, I want this core board that doesn't have an ability to type. <laughs> you know, no one says that. So it's just kind of like, why are we not taking that into consideration when we're thinking about what systems to set up and what systems to put into place? Um, because it feels like a huge piece of this, this puzzle of like, what should we do as clinicians? Well, okay, let's keep going there because I certainly have had people say they want that, but not as their primary system, but certainly as an alternative to their primary system. That's what they would want. Yeah, it's just super frustrating to me, you know, that we keep having these, you know, kids who are stuck with systems that aren't long-term systems and educators who are really advocating for short-term solutions instead of thinking long-term for our students. Um, and I think Ultimately, at the end of the day, the problem isn't caught up in the tools and all those things. The problem is this underlying belief that if a student doesn't show you immediate success, that it's not right and it can't possibly do it. And like we talk all about the power of belief when we do a lot of presentations together and we talk a lot about it on this podcast. But it's like if you deep down believe that your students are capable of making progress, then we have to assume that when we put a device in front of them that's high tech and robust and all the things that with the right supports and intervention, they will learn how to use it. And I have the ability to say in my clinical practice, I've never met a kid not able to make progress and success with high tech AAC, not one. Now I've had students who I've worked with for years and I've been troubleshooting all the roadblocks that are coming up and trying to adequately support the team. And it's not easy, but I've never once you know, said, well, actually, this was the student that wasn't able to succeed with high tech, robust AAC. 
Not once in my entire, you know, clinical practice have I had a student that I've met who wasn't able to do it. And if you look at the, again, to your point about the the, the users we've had on this podcast, the people we've met outside of this podcast, there's only one way people win. It's a with robust communication system as early as possible, right? That's the only, that's the only thing I've ever seen work with anybody, anybody. Uh, I, again, I, we've said it before. We'll say it again. If you know someone who's different. If you are listening to this, be like, well, I know somebody that did this and now they're uh, using AAC. We invite them to come on and teach teach us differently. We just haven't found them, right? And haven't done it in spite of it, like have done it because of it, right? Because a lot of people have overcome to get there. But uh, I think even they would say, give it to me sooner. Give me the robust AAC system sooner and teach me how to do it well. Uh, That's what I missed. I've overcome the fact that I haven't done that. We certainly have heard people on our podcast talk about that. But give it to me sooner is what people say. And if you know different, you're invited to come on. It's um, You can reach out at talkingwithtech at gmail.com, attipscast at gmail.com. Info at rachelmadel.com. All the ways to get in touch with us. Yeah, let us know. I will scream it from the rooftops. Please bring them on. We'll, I will take the, the sneakers that people gave me to get to work and I will eat it here right on the podcast live. If you can uh, eat my words. Chris, okay, <laughs> we'll eat a shoe. <laughs> I'm excited for that. <laughs> I'm not worried because I've been asking for years and haven't found it. So I think my, I, my, I'll have a healthy diet of fiber for a while. I won't be eating that rubber sole anytime soon. <laughs> Chris, before we hop into the interview today, we have some new Patreon members that I want to shout out because I love that we've had a few new Patreon members since the last time we recorded. So I'm shouting out Albert, Jenna, and Margaret. Thank you guys so much for joining our Patreon. If you guys are interested in more content, uh, we have years of extra bonus content in our Patreon. You can go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech. And um, not only will you get lots of fun AAC resources, behind the scenes interviews, um, all types of things in there, but also it's just a way to support this podcast. So if you really feel like this podcast has changed your practice and has been really beneficial, it just helps us do this podcast. We pay the people, Luke and Michaela, who make this podcast possible. We would greatly appreciate your support. Patreon.com backslash talking with tech. Rachel, tell us about our interview today. Chris, I am super excited about today's episode. Uh, I interviewed a crew um, under the name Bilingue AAC. So we talk all about bilingual AAC and how we can support our students who are using multiple languages, have, you know, a primary home language that might be different from what's happening at school. Um, How do we help support our students who aren't just using one language? Um, This is an area of our field that definitely needs more research and um, definitely more guidance. I think a lot of clinicians listening are probably like, yes, like, what do I do with my students who, you know, whose primary language is not English? Um, How do we figure out how to support those students? What tools are out there and what, uh, you know, capacity are within those tools to switch between languages. Um, So we kind of do a deep dive into bilingual AAC. This is part one of my interview with Bilingue AAC. Hi, I'm Chris Klein. I am the vice president of Inbrucked Voices. We are excited to announce Impact Voices inaugural live hangout in Celebration 2022 in Arlington, Virginia, October 7 and 8. 
This is the only conference which the AAC and business community will be able to network together. We are going to impact AAC users to dream big, empower them with tools to gain employment, and connect them with employers. We are going to impact employers by educating them about the AAC community, empower them with providing resources to hire an AAC's user, and connect them to the AAC community. Please mark your calendars for this exciting conference. For more information about Impact Voices Inaugural Live, Hangout and Celebration, please visit our website, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by a whole crew under the name of Bilingue, Bilingue, AAC. I'm super excited. We're going to be talking all about bilingualism um, and how to take considerations um, into our clinical practice when we're both assessing for and treating students who use AAC. So we have a crew of four ladies today. Um, I'm going to introduce them one by one and have them just say a little bit about themselves. I'm going to start with Alma Partida. So hi, my name is Alma. I run the Instagram account called AEC for you and me. And we started Bilingue AEC with the basis of helping those um, bilingual and monolingual SLPs to help uh, foster the Spanish language at home of their AEC uh, students or AEC users. Um, Yeah. Love it. Okay, Sarah Lee. Hi, I'm Sarah Lee. I'm a speech language pathologist and an AAC specialist in the Bay Area. Um, and I met Alma through Instagram. And I also run an account called AAC underscore together. Love it. Okay, next up, we have Melissa Tapia. Hi, I'm Melissa. I'm from the Midwest in Chicagoland area. Uh, I met the girls through Instagram as well. I am at hablame underscore they underscore language. Uh, it was so great to, you know, be brought into this project by Alma, Sarah, and Maria. I think uh, we really work so well together, and this is a work of passion, and I'm excited to share more about it with you all. Awesome. And then uh, last but definitely not least, Maria de Leon. Hi, everyone. Um, So I'm Maria, and I'm a bilingual SLP in California. Um, So I also run an Instagram account under the name code.switch.slp. So yeah, I'm excited to be part of this group. These ladies have been amazing, and I'm excited to share what we've come up so far. I love it. Instagram really brings people together is the the, the takeaway here. Um, and to be honest, like I feel like I've learned so much from social media and have made so many connections. Um, so super excited. We will definitely link for all of our listeners to everyone's Instagram account. So we're going to get lots of Instagram followers, hopefully after this episode. Um, but let's just start off by like talking about the genesis of this. And uh, we're going to kind of do a lot of deep dives into like, what do we need to think about and all those things. But, you know, what, how did this get started? 
So it all started because I'm reading a lot about this cultural linguistic appropriate therapy practices. My students are predominantly bilingual households with monolingual Spanish speaking. Um, and so I really wanted to do it. I didn't know how to do it because I did install the toggle button, as we all probably already know by now, right? How to do a, a toggle button? How do you do code switching? And I, at that point, then I didn't know what else to do. Like, how do I put Spanish therapy, like Spanish vocabulary words in my therapy sessions? So I reached out to Alma. Alma's doing all this fantastic stuff for diverse AEC. She's doing, talking a lot about Spanish language. And I asked her to essentially come and help me. Yeah, so Sarah reached out and she said, you know, can you give me like a word list of things I should target, right? Because I don't speak Spanish, but all of my uh, students use Spanish AEC systems. And I said, well, it's not that easy, right? First of all, we shouldn't translate core word list. And then I decided that it was this was a bigger topic. This was a bigger project. And I reached out to Maria and Melissa, who I know from uh, attending MinSpeak uh, seminars with Dr. Gloria Soto, who's really big on bilingualism and AAC. And I, you know, made a DM to all three of them. And I said, hey, guys, I think this sounds like a really big project that we should all tackle together. And that's kind of how Bilingua AAC got started last year. March 2021 was when we first met. So, yeah, that's it's been a labor of love, a year's worth of work and yeah, we're excited to share. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you guys on and talk all about this because it's obviously a huge need in our field and there's a lot of misconceptions and myths, which we're going to get into in a second. Um, I just, uh, I I think that it's really awesome that you guys kind of came together. Um, sometimes in the, the world of the work that we do, it feels like this like one man or woman show, right? And it's like, you know, you guys all have unique experiences. It sounds like you guys are from different parts of the country. Uh, so it's really interesting um, how you guys have all kind of come together. And it's really cool. Um, okay, so let's dive in. When I have a student who gets referred to me um, who needs AAC, and I realize that they are bilingual, what are some types of considerations uh, that I need to think about as someone who's doing an AAC assessment or, you know, trialing doesn't have to be a formal AAC assessment because I know a lot of our listeners out there, maybe they're not doing AAC assessments, but, um, you know, they're working with students who use AAC. Maybe the student has a device, but it's only in one language, but they are bilingual. Um, so what kinds of things should we be considering when we're thinking about AAC users who are bilingual? So yeah, for our AAC users who are bilingual, one of the first steps would definitely be uh, getting an interpreter or translator involved um, because when we know with AAC, this is going to have to be a family-centered approach. Uh, we're going to get the family involved and uh, we want the family to understand that we are not there to tell them what to do. <laughs> uh, we are the professionals, but we're there to take their um their, take their home environment, bring it and intertwine it to get the, uh, you know, the most accurate representation of who this student is, who this child is, and make that accessible on their AAC device, just like we do with our monolingual students. We want them to be represented in their AAC device. Um, but when you have students who are bilingual, you're bringing in a lot of their home life into that. So family-centered approach is a uh, you know, the way to, to do it. So that's one of our very first steps is to make ensuring we have a, a interpreter translator available in the native language or the language that the parents speak. Um, 
And then we've also been discussing a lot how it is in our code of ethics from ASHA, this cultural competence. Um, we need to be aware that we are uh, adhering to it as well. Um, you know, we can't just be like, well, they're in school. They speak English in school. It's a language of instruction. Like, no, <laughs> that is not what we have to have on our mindset. Um, so, yeah. I love that the fact that you're mentioning kind of a family approach, um, something I'm a big advocate for is team-based assessments. So, you know, if we're just going in and have one set of eyes on a student and don't really know what environments, you know, they're in and they need communication in and, you know, all the things that we know help inform our assessment process, how could we possibly be able to select a tool or figure out targets or figure out what a child's motivated by? Like there's so many things that are involved and it sounds like, you know, what you guys are advocating for is that um, in addition to obviously getting the input from a family, which is important no matter what we're doing, um, but also specific to, you know, cultural practices and traditions, um, you know, specific words. I know there's a lot of code switching oftentimes, um, you know, in a child who is bilingual. Um, so it sounds like, you know, that feels like the focal point to the work that we're doing is really being able to connect with families. What? Because I know there's listeners out here who are like, I would love that, except I actually don't have access to an interpreter. Um, what do I do? Good. Sorry. Uh, so, yeah. So one of the things um, that we were discussing, you know, amongst ourselves as well, when these questions do come up, because we, we do want to, you know, I think uh, Sarah here has been such a great input to this team because she doesn't speak Spanish. And we were actually just validated this yesterday. Like, Sarah, you're such an important part of this team because you're out there, you know, you're coming back to the us with these questions that a lot of the monolingual, monolingual SLPs have. And, you know, when as bilingual SLP, sometimes we, we don't think of these things, you know. So um, one of the tips I like to give a lot of my monolingual SLP friends is when we're trialing devices or thinking of the devices we want to trial, the vocabulary sets we want to have is be prepared. And then I also always want to try and choose activities they're really like familiar with. So for example, let's say this is just like an early communicator and you choose to do like brown bear, brown bear, like how many of us, we know brown bear, brown bear, you know, front and back. Um, and even though we don't know the language, like we could probably follow along with what they're doing, kind of assessing even their um, ability, uh, like their receptive language, kind of gauging, like, are they really, you know, being able to follow along with just like even like pointing some of those early communication, um, you know, th that we look out for in our, um, in our students, like uh, their language abilities as well, because it does get tricky when you don't have an interpreter available. So when and I want to talk about, we're going to get into specifics about AAC systems and what kind of those features are, because I feel like that's a big question that people have is like, I have a student who, uh, you know, needs to speak Vietnamese or Italian or Spanish. And so I want to kind of go through some of that. Um, I'm curious if you guys can explain, um, I think, Sarah, maybe you had mentioned the toggle the toggle feature, which I know what that is, but for our listeners who are like, what are they talking about? Um, can you explain that? 
So a lot of apps right now have it in there in a second language. So they will have an option for Spanish language, right? So what you can do is you can take your English um, overlay or communication app and create a toggle button where it will toggle to the second language of your choice. So for us, because we're predominantly focused on Spanish language, I create a toggle button that would go into the Spanish and they can go back, flip back into English as well. Gotcha. So it's a way to kind of code switch AAC wise. Like I want to say something in Spanish now because I'm at home with my family and we can teach students how to use that feature. We also can teach communication partners how to go back and forth between the languages. Accurate? That's correct. And I would also add that, again, so some apps already come with it preset and in other ones you do have to go in and create an actual toggle button. Um, And I would say that, you know, the perfect AAC bilingual system is not out there yet, but they're all getting pretty close. Like ideally for me, if I were to create a bilingual app, I would have, you know, an English vocabulary set where I select the button and it'll give me a Spanish option, for example. But even that gets complex in terms of like which language fits which profile. And what if I want to say this word with a Spanish accent, but it's an English word, you know, it's very, very tricky when you get to like the nitty gritty of bilingualism and AAC. But um, overall, I, I would say the apps are getting pretty close. And again, so some apps come with a preset and other ones you have to actually create it. And on Diverse AEC, um, the YouTube channel, we actually have a video on like creating a touch chat uh, word power toggle button. And I think we have one for Polico to go as well. So we have those listed on there. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that YouTube channel in our show notes. Um, Since we're kind of on the topic, can we talk a little more specifically about specific AAC systems? And we can talk about Spanish because I realize that's the focus. And I think that's a lot. That's predominantly the, you know, second language that we're thinking about when we're thinking about bilingualism. Um, Can we talk a little bit about the different AAC systems that are on the market and, you know, what potential features that they have that would be, you know, pro versus con? talking about each system, because I know that's a question I get a lot is, oh, I have this, you know, this student and this language and like what system? Um, so you guys talk a little bit about the differences between the the systems. Yeah. So apart from working with Bilingua AEC, I also started with Diverse AEC. And we actually interviewed a lot of the device companies, Avas, uh, Saltillo, and Saltillo PRC, um, Dynavox was there. And we just asked them, what are you doing in terms of these code switching abilities? What What do you have done? And a lot of the times we found that these devices, like I said, are getting pretty close, but it's more than what I thought it would be. I thought it would be so easy to create a new language. I thought it would be so easy to create these voices. And I found out through their interviews that it's not as easy as we may think it is. Um, and so they're on our diverse AEC bio, we have a whole crosswalk dedicated to all the different apps and all the different languages that it comes in. And uh, some apps have more languages than others. And some I have found a lot of them are direct translations of English, which is not exactly what we want to do either. Again, that's what all most of the apps are doing. Uh, But it's not ideal because what the way you model language in Spanish would be different than the way you model in English. One of the pros, I guess, is like if you're doing bilingual therapy, all the buttons are around the same page. Um, So if you flip back and forth, you would find the same word if you were flipping back to Spanish. But again, uh, if you're wanting a truly bilingual system, it it should look a little different, right? When you're modeling different languages. Um, Yeah. 
I was going to ask a follow-up there. So what I'm hearing you say is that we can't, if obviously we're thinking about like best practice, but then we're like, what's realistic practice given our limitations with the technology and all the things. Um, But what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, it's not a direct translation. So we can't like take, uh, you know, a core board and be like, let's make a direct translation to from this English word to this Spanish word, because it doesn't doesn't always fit into a box that that neatly. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, Maria is going to go into a little bit about, you know, why we shouldn't translate core word list. And I think that it's important to to note, like a lot of the words are similar, right? But they're not exactly the same. And if we really want this to be a family approach, we want to ask the families, what can this AAC device do for you? And a lot of times you're going to find that the core word lists that are listed on the apps are not exactly what they want in, on their device, or they don't need it in those certain situations. Um, I also feel like we're very pro core, right? We're like core heavy. But for a lot of these bilingual families, sometimes core French does take some priority and we should keep that in mind when we're, you know, uh, designing these systems. And I feel like a lot of the apps, like I said, just are direct translations of English. And we should just keep that in mind in terms of if, if that's best suiting our students. Gotcha. Maria, can you go into a little more detail about the the direct translation dilemma? Yeah. Um, I, and I feel like uh, the core words in the vocabulary, it goes back to the initial assessment or at least the initial uh, time that you start seeing one of your students or clients is really like uh, examining like what does the family look like, right? Like doing a vocabulary inventory, doing an all about me inventory and trying to figure out this is why we mentioned like family center approach is really important because every family is different. And when it comes to a bilingual family, um, it can, it's even more different because they're speaking a second language. Uh, in terms of the direct translation, um, we don't want to do that because every language, uh, as you know, language is really closely related to culture. Uh, English, uh, it has its own culture. So we come up with 80% are considered core words and the other 20% is something we call French, right? For Spanish, it does, it's not necessarily like that. One, because it's a different culture um, and we speak different um, in a different way. Um, I do got to say that uh, similar to what Alma was saying, a lot of the words do kind of overlap and it happens to be that Spanish is actually one of the easiest languages uh, like this similar to English than like Chinese, for example. So um, if we were trying for Chinese, core words are completely different than those in English. Um, but uh, talking about that, Soto uh, and Cooper 2021, um, they did a research study trying to, uh, they collected like a bunch of uh, articles with core words or high frequency words is what they called it. They didn't call it core words, but high frequency words in Spanish for Spanish speaking children. And they found out uh, that there is about like 230 words. Um, And these, some of them do overlap with English, but other words don't overlap. Um, So taking that into consideration, we do really want to make sure that we, when we are presenting words or core words, that we're taking an approach of like looking at these Spanish core words and maybe finding a similar English core word and core word and then teaching that. Um, I do think that research with Spanish core words is very limited. Um, This research study that Soto and Cooper came up is just 2021 and it's probably the only core word 
Spanish research out there. And if we're talking about other languages like Chinese or uh, Vietnamese or anything like that, there's nothing. Um, so it's really tricky. And again, this is why it takes us back to really taking that family center approach and doing a vocabulary inventory and trying to figure out what words do we really want to emphasize uh, during our intervention. Speaking of kind of the vocabulary inventory, um, I have a few experiences where I've done a AAC assessment with a bilingual Spanish speaking student. And my experience was luckily I had an amazing SL, bilingual Spanish SLP. So she was alongside of me and she was kind of responsible for the language assessment. And I was responsible for the AAC. And together we were working on this case. It ended up being like a legal case, which is why I had everything I needed at my disposal. And normally wouldn't have all those things. But um, we found that it was super interesting as far as receptive language, the student, and we needed to work heavily with the parent and also the paraprofessional that was with the student to figure out like, oh, you know, they definitely say agua, not water, you know, or like the opposite. They definitely know this word in English, but they don't know it in Spanish, actually. Um, and so I feel like those are really important conversations to have when we're trying to assess, um, you know, our complex communicators, because it's possible that they have a word in Spanish or English, um, and they don't have it in the, you know, the opposite language. Um, is that something that you guys have found in your own practice too? Is that like, we have to get pretty specific about specific words and the specific language? Yeah. I think that that's just a demonstration of bilingualism mm -hmm. in itself, even without AAC. That's how bilingual students learn two languages is that, uh, sometimes, uh, they are stronger in one language than in the other language. Um, and, you know, that saying, saying that bilingualism doesn't cause any delays in the case that you're describing, it couldn't be any true, truer because uh, we're using the concepts either in Spanish or in English. And then we're teaching that in the other language that they don't have that concept in. So, yeah, so it happens a lot because it's just a part of like normal language development in bilingualism. So you do notice that some concepts are in English and some concepts are in Spanish. Um, so we, when we are talking about bilingual students, that's why we don't wanna, uh, we wanna assess in both languages, right? And try to figure out, is this really a language disorder or, or a language delay? Um, so yeah, I don't know if uh, anyone else wants to add a little bit more about that. Just as part of my bilingual assessments, I always take a home language survey and I because I have a lot of families that are like, oh, yeah, we're super bilingual. When you get down to the nitty gritty, you find like they're probably 90 percent English with a little Spanish sprinkled in. So for those kids, you know, I might consider an English overlay, you know, and maybe add some French and Spanish or even a light tech board in all Spanish, because, you know, that's kind of where the family or how the family dynamic is functioning. So it's important to keep that in mind when you're assessing like the, the level of um, familiarity with each language for sure. And that's, I also want to add, Melissa. sorry. I wanted to add also that during the pandemic, I definitely saw um, a switch in a lot of my bilingual students who were at home most of the time. Uh, they're like, on that bilingual continuum, they were becoming a little more Spanish dominant because they were at home so much more with parents. It was amazing to see that they were uh, choosing to, you know, speak more in their home language and Spanish, as opposed to when I was seeing them in the schools, that they would definitely use more English in the school. I mean, it's the, the majority language in a school, essentially. But I always, um, you know, prompt them in both English and Spanish and just let them take the lead. And typically, more than not, they do 
uh, use English more so, but it was really great to see and hear them use their home language once they were at home because they were just, they were being exposed to more Spanish and being modeled more Spanish at home. <laughs> 